You can tell I don't have an Aussie accent, even though we've lived there 30 years. But we moved there in 1987. My wife, Carol, is with me. In about 13 weeks, we'll celebrate 42 years of marriage. And she's my hero. She's my hero. And we're just honored to be with you today. We're on our way back home to Australia tomorrow and can't wait. We haven't seen them grandbabies in a few weeks. And uh, how many know grandchildren are the reward for getting older? Come on now. Everything else about getting older, not so much, but grandchildren. And uh, Pastor, we're so honored to stand with you today uh, with your Faith Promise Sunday. Uh, This is also our DNA, the same as is yours here. We have found through Faith Promise Giving that we can truly put missions in that place that it belongs in our life. I believe a faith promise card keeps us from haphazard, nonchalant, catch me if you can on a missions offering day, and I might have a few bucks in my pocket. How many know that kind of giving will never, ever save the world? But on purpose, strategic, faith-filled, God-focused, setting this out uh, before God as though this mattered, as though souls mattered. How many know the gospel is the power to deliver nations? But how many know it has no power to deliver nations until it's delivered to nations? And family, the gospel will not be delivered to nations without somebody going and without somebody sending. And we may not all be able to go. I love the little video. We sure can go next door. But we may not all be able to go to China or Africa. We may not. But we certainly can go as we send in our place others. And we do this through faith promise giving. We've had the privilege in our church to, uh, over the last uh, years, uh, to um, ask, when we do the faith promises, we ask three questions. This is what we've learned, and we're still learning. We're still learning through the years, but we ask three questions. Number one, what could I give? If souls matter, if heaven and hell are real, if the gospel is the truth, if there's nothing more precious on this planet than a human being, then what could I give? I mean, I live... We're Americans or we're Australians. We live in the blessed land. We live in a, you know, over half the world lives on 50 cents a day. And so here we are blessed. And we might look at each other and say, well, I'm not as blessed as her or she's more blessed than me. I know. But when you compare us to the rest of the world, we're like in the top one or two percent of blessed in the whole world. And so in our place of seeing ourselves blessed, we ask these three questions. What could I give? If the Great Commission is truly the command of Jesus, if I want my family to be a part of the Great Commission, I ask this question, what could I give? And then I ask a second question because I'm not going to fill this out until I've asked three questions. The second question, first question is, what could I give? But the second question is, and what could I give up? Now, of course, that's not a popular question in the Western church. You know, in the Western church, we're not looking for what we can give up. We're looking for what we can get. But I believe that Christianity from the cross of Calvary to multitudes of places all over the earth today understand this concept. Not just what could I give, but what could I give up? Could I live more simply so someone else could live eternally? Is there something, Lord Jesus, that maybe, uh, you know, an excess that I have or something? It's, it's not just what could I give. But if people matter, Lord, I'm, I'm going to ask a second question. What could I give up? And then we ask a third question. And it's the reason we call it a faith promise. 
Because if we're going to add faith to it, then we need to ask God to help us beyond our own ability. And so we ask this third question. And Lord, what could I believe you for? Here's what I could come up with, Lord, in giving or maybe giving up. But I'm going to stretch that figure just a little bit because it's faith that pleases you. It's faith that honors you. And Lord, if you, if you will trust me with whatever amount, you, you, of course, faith promise is very personal. And you, it's between you and God. But when you say, Lord, what would you, I'm going to trust you not just for what I can give and what I can give up, but for a little something more. Then, family, it's in those three questions that we are able to truly embrace Jesus' last command and make it our first priority. When Carol and I first moved to Australia, we were there six months, and we had our first Faith Promise Missions Conference. And I remember that Sunday, we handed out Faith Promise cards, and uh, we were just a little small congregation of about 25 people. And I can remember my daughter, my middle daughter. Her name is Carissa. She filled out that faith promise card. She was seven. Actually, she was younger than that. I think she was about five. And she filled out the faith promise card, and I read it. And here's what she wrote. She wrote $1 a week. And I thought, Lord, that's $52. And, you know, back in those days, back in the 80s, for $52, we could pay for one of our church planters in Indonesia, one of our church planters' salary for an entire month. And I thought, my little five-year-old girl with her faith promise is going to fully support a pastor and his family for one whole month with her $52. I was proud of her as her pastor, and I was also proud of her as her father. But then I thought, wait a minute. I said, a dollar a week? I said, that's her entire allowance. I mean, that's what I give her. And the Lord said to me, yeah, you tightwad. What are you going to do about it? And, you know, I just felt immediately, immediately I felt led to increase her, her, her allowance. I mean, I thought, $1 a week, Lord, that's all, I, that's all she gets. And I can remember him speaking to me, yeah, you cheapskate. <laughs> and so I, here's, here's the thing. If I, being evil, know how to respond to my little girl, I wonder how much more your heavenly father as we sang about him this morning, our good, good father, I wonder how much more he knows how to respond to you. If you, from your heart, could embrace what is passionate to God, and that is lost people, lost people. Nobody's going to get saved without the gospel family. And the gospel is free if you're receiving it, but it's expensive if you're providing it. Ask the Father. Ask the Son of God. And ask any church that's worth its salt Because the gospel is expensive if you're providing it. But it's sure free if you're receiving it. And so this morning, we just want to encourage you and stand with you. And I'm going to share the word here in just a few minutes. And somebody needs to help me because I know we have another service. And so keep me on track, okay? Keep me on time. I'm looking back there for a clock. Okay, I see a clock up there. (coughs) Excuse me. Can I just tell you a quick story? A couple years ago, we had a little boy. Heck, I'm I'm probably going to drive the sound man crazy. We, a few years ago, we had our missions conference. It was just a couple years ago. We had a little boy make a faith promise. And I'll never forget it. He, uh, he's just a young fellow. I think he was seven years old. And his mom worked in our school. His dad worked in our school. Just blue-collar, hard-working folk. But this little boy made a faith promise with a lot of zeros behind it. And I thought, oh, you know, I mean, I love him and I appreciate his little heart. But there's no way I was going to count that faith promise with our total, because, you know, we have to, we have to budget. 
We have to budget from that faith promise. We got missionaries. We got works. We got church planters. And I can't just have some little boy faith promise thousands of dollars and I'm adding that in. So I never said anything to anybody. I just took his little faith promise, pushed it aside. And I just thought, well, God bless him and I love him and I'm going to encourage him. But I'm just not going to tell anybody, but I'm not going to add it in. You know, that little fella, a couple months later, it was his birthday. And he asked his mother, he said, he, he said, Mama, can I have a big birthday party? She said, yes. And he said, can I invite everybody? She said, sure. And he said, but Mama, I want a different birthday party this year. Said, okay, what do you want? He said, I don't want any presents. She said, you don't want any presents? He said, Mama, I want everybody to come to my birthday and help me with my faith promise. See, we asked the question, what could I give? And then we asked the question, what could I give up? And that little fellow, his name's Jackson. That little fella had this birthday party. And he said, no presents. Don't bring me any presents. And so people brought him gifts of, of, of cash. And he got that little, st- little pile of cash started. He got that little stack of cash going. And then I'd see him on Sundays out in the foyer selling cupcakes. They'd been, he'd been, he and his mom had been cooking cupcakes. So I, I got this little entrepreneur, a little seven-year-old entrepreneur in my church. And he's out there selling cupcakes every Sunday. And I remember Christmas rolled around. And he come up to the front of the church, and he said, Pastor, he said, would you like to buy some of my handmade Christmas cards? He had them in a little cellophane wrap, you know, and I said, yes, sir, bud, I'd love to buy some of your Christmas cards. You know, that little fellow gave $7,000. He made his faith promise. He made his faith promise. And I thought, Lord, there'd be businessmen all across Sydney, businessmen who've never even come close to doing something like that. And here's a little boy making a faith promise, asking three questions. What could I give? What could I give up? What could I believe God for? So we just want to encourage you today. I honor you. You know, the truth of the matter is only one penny out of every dollar given to God in the United States goes overseas for missions. And so I honor this house. This is a rare house, Pastor. It's a rare heart. This is a rare church, and we just love and bless you today. So I'm going to just share a few thoughts with you. Would you reach your hand out towards me, please, and pray for me? Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing Carol and I to be here with this great family, for Pastor Mike and Dawn. Thank you for this grace place. Lord, I love being in the place of grace. And I ask now, Father, in these next few minutes that you'd speak to our hearts. Thank you for such tender, open-hearted, big-hearted people. And I just my honor to serve them right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your prayer. Now I want to share a message with you this morning called, If I Were the Devil. Now don't get worried, because I'm not the devil, okay? I mean, he's, come on, don't get scared. How many know he's defeated and disarmed? I said defeated and disarmed. I mean, what good is he? If he's, de- if he's, if he's got no feet and no arms, we'll use him for first base. Home plate, we'll use him for home plate. So don't get nervous. I'm just going to talk a little bit about what I would do if I were the devil. Now, how many know he's been around a long time? He's been around a long time doing catastrophic chaos and mindless, merciless mayhem. I mean, he's a bad devil, or maybe he's good. Anyway, he's, being, he's good at being the devil, but he's a bad devil. Jesus said in John 8, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Now, he's speaking to those cold-hearted Pharisees. He says, he, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth, for there is no truth in him. 
And when he lies, he speaks his native language. He's the father of lies. And then in Revelation 12, 9, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now look, if I were the devil, I would know from my time with God. I would know from my time in heaven. I would know from whatever season that was that I existed in that realm, I would know some things about God. I would. And I would know that God cannot lie. Now, I would not want you to know that, but I would know that. I would know that God is not a man that he should lie, as we read in Numbers 23. I would know that everything God says comes to pass. Now, I would tell you that's not true. But deep down in my dark little shriveled up heart, I would know that God's word cannot fail and everything God says is going to come to pass. I would hate it, but I would still know that it is the truth. And if I were the devil, I would know what he said about me. And I would know what he said about my future. How many know the devil has a future? Somebody said when he reminds you of your past, you should remind him about his future. Here's what it says about the devil's future in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. Now, if I were the devil, I would know that that is exactly what is going to happen to me. And there's not a thing that I can do about it. I would know that. And God's word makes it very clear what's going to happen to the devil and when it's going to happen. Jesus said in Mark 13, 10, and the gospel must first, everybody say first. first. See, something's got to happen first. Before that happens, something's got to happen first. And here's what Jesus said. The gospel must first be preached to the nations. Come on, family, to the nations. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel This gospel that we're talking about this morning, this gospel that we're looking to finance and send this morning, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then, and then the end will come. Now, if I were the devil, I would know that before the inevitable happened to me, that first the gospel has to be preached in the nations of the world. And as long as the gospel is somehow kept from being preached into all the world as a witness to all the nations, I'm okay. I'm still here. I'm cool. I'm still the devil prancing around in my little phony plastic kingdom. If I were the devil, my first priority would be to see to it that there is no place of grace like this house or somewhere else I would be, my, 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 to keep the gospel from going to the nations of the world, all of my power, all of my kingdom, all of my demonic resources would be totally committed to keeping the gospel from spreading to the nations of the world, and my future would depend on it. Now, here's an amazing scripture that we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. This scripture, it blows me away. The apostle says this, Therefore, Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for? Now, listen to this. We all looking for the return of the Lord. We're all looking for it. But listen to what it says. Looking for and hastening. Yes, sir. And hastening the coming of the day of God. Did you see that? 
We're looking for the return. We're look, but, the, but the apostle says, looking for and hastening the day of God. The Living Bible says it like this. You should look forward to that day and hurry it along. Come on. Are you kidding me? I'm to look for the return of the Lord, and I'm to hurry it along. Man, I believe that Jesus is always meant for his delay in returning to receive his beautiful church to be a short delay. At least that's what he said in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 11. He said, behold, I am coming quickly. And then he said in Revelation 22, 7, behold, I am coming quickly. And then he said in Revelation twenty two twelve, behold, I am coming quickly. And then he said in Revelation twenty two twenty, surely I'm coming quickly. Now he says that we, the church, we, the bearers of the true life of God, the, the gospel bearers, the, the containers of his grace and his mercy and his message, he says we are to hasten his return, to hurry it along, to speed it up. I believe the Lord is anxious to return. And yet while the church of Jesus Christ in the Western world looks for and longs for his coming, I believe he's looking and longing for her going. We're saying, come, Lord Jesus. He's saying, go, sweet church. Come, Lord, go, church. Come, Lord, go, church. How many know he ain't coming until we get going? How many know this gospel has got to be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations? Now, I don't know about your end-time eschatology. It's all good. I hear this guy say it's going to happen this way. That sounds all right. I hear this guy say it's going to happen that way. That sounds pretty good, too. I hear this guy over here say, no, no, it's all going to happen that way. Well, so that makes sense. But let me tell you how it's going to happen, according to Jesus. What all that other stuff is, is what it is. But this gospel is going to be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and family. Then the end will come. Now, if I were the devil... I would be totally committed to keeping the gospel from getting outside of the church and going into all the world. Man, I'd be so busy trying to keep that from happening. If I were the devil, I would see Christians who took seriously the last command of Jesus and committed their finances and their families and their resources to fulfilling the Great Commission. I would consider you my worst nightmare. If I were the devil... I would have schemes and strategies to keep the gospel from going to other people. And I'd work at it like my eternal destiny depended upon it. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, at least the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine upon them. In other words, the devil is out there blinding minds. Oh, listen, Satan is not only trying to damn mankind he's trying to preserve himself listen the bible says in second corinthians eleven three. but i fearly somehow as the serpent deceived eve by his craftiness craftiness ephesians six eleven. put on all of god's armor so that you can stand safe against strategies and tricks strategies and tricks of the devil <coughs> excuse me second corinthians 2 11 in order that Satan might not outwit us. Come on, family. But if I was the devil, I'd tell every despicable, damnable, bald, bold-faced lie I could tell. Oh, you better believe it. I would deceive, disguise, and disgust. 
I would use despair and despondency to dishearten and discourage anybody who took seriously the command of the Lord Jesus that the gospel must be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Oh, I would mock and jeer. I would intimidate and cause fear, ridicule and sneer, sadistically leer. I would stop up the ear and confuse what they hear. I would provoke them to veer without mercy or tear. I would make the gospel unclear, make the price seem so dear so that their souls I could shear to keep him from drawing near and my future right here. So let me tell you what I would do if I were the devil. I would have at least six. That's a good devil number. Six. Six strategies to keep the gospel from getting outside these walls. To keep the gospel from going beyond this parking lot out here. So let me tell you what I would do if I were the devil. Number one, first thing I would do if I were the devil is I would marginalize missions. Yeah. I would get it off the main. I'd put it over there in the margin somewhere. Move it back over here. Set it. I would departmentalize missions. I would put it on the very busy list of all those other very busy things that we got to do as a church. You know, I'd put it over there somewhere next to the Women's Quilting Society. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But I would do everything I could to keep it from becoming the first priority of the local church. I would see to it that pastors all over America had a missions program, not a missions passion. I would see to it that churches had a missions department, not a missions dynamic or a missions DNA. I would see to it that Christians had a missions conscience, not a missions commitment. Yes, I would marginalize missions. If I were the devil, I'd keep the church so busy with all of its departments, so anxious about all the hundreds of details that are involved in running a church that she wouldn't have the time, the heart, or the energy to focus on missions. If I were the devil, I'd get senior pastors to focus on their finances, their facilities, and their frequent flyer points, not the doomed and the damned and the dying. I would do everything I could to keep the main thing from becoming the main thing. As a matter of fact, if I were the devil, the main thing would be to keep the main thing from becoming the main thing. The Apostle Paul said, this one thing I do. Somebody said, the really idle man gets nowhere, but the perpetually busy man doesn't get much further. If I were the devil, I'd marginalize missions. Secondly, if I were the devil, I would get Christians to focus on this world, not the next one. I mean, like right here and right now, not eternity. The temporal, the temporal, the temporal. Work your whole life for a few short years, retire, play a little golf, and then get out of here. Live for right now, because right now is all you got. Come on, go for the gusto. The gusto is here. Don't think about eternity. Don't think about your accountability to God. Don't think that you're going to have to give an answer to God for how you lived your life and spent your money and used your time. Don't, 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 don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. Somebody asked the great American Daniel Webster his greatest thought. Daniel Webster said, my greatest thought is my accountability to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, it says, So we fix our eyes, 
Not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Man, I'd get the Christian church, I'd get the church of Jesus Christ so focused on right here and right now. The temporal would surround us, and hold us. The Bible says in Romans 14, 12, so then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Thirdly, if I were, I'd marginalize missions and I'd get Christians so thinking about the little sandbar of time between the two great oceans of eternity. I'd seduce them into thinking that this sandbar is what it's really all about. This little few minutes that we get right here, just go, go, go. Don't even think. Don't even think about the eternal. I was sharing some years ago with Pastor Marilyn Hickey. Carol and I were doing a missions conference for her up in, in Colorado. And I, I remember sharing with Pastor Marilyn Hickey, and I said to her, you know, in Australia, I said, well, we never, ever dismiss church without helping the people, reminding the people to think about eternity. And I'll never forget. She looked at me, and she said, brother, we don't do that much in the Western world. Come on, how many know eternity is reality? And this is just passing Thirdly, if I were the devil, I would teach that the purpose of prosperity is to see how many toys I could buy before I die, how many things I could accumulate. I remember years ago in Yuma, Arizona, where Carol and I are from, I was driving down 4th Avenue in this great big black Ford Bronco pickup. I don't even know if they make Broncos anymore. I've lived in Australia for 30 years now, so I don't really know. But this big black Bronco with chrome all around it. Man, it just come a big up off the ground. And I remember looking at that truck going, dude. And then his bumper sticker said, he who dies with the most toys wins. I thought, really? I kind of think it this way. He who dies with the most toys still dies. No, man, if I was the devil, I'd teach Christians that the purpose of prosperity is shot till you drop. Buy till you die. Spin to the end. Come on now. I'd get Christians to love earthly treasures more than heavenly treasures. I'd get them to believe that the temporal investment in things is more to be desired than the eternal investment in souls. I would see to it that the major focus of their money would just be stuff. Lots of stuff. Newer, bigger, brighter, bigger, gigger, shinier stuff. As a matter of fact, I think I would, I would, I would change fashion about every three or four months just, just so that everything we're wearing is out of style. Just saying. You know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't do that. When Jesus says do not, do not, how many know you'd have to be a theologian to make that say something else? You know, do not. He says don't do this. Do not. Verse 20. But do this. Store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Family, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I wonder if they were to bury our heart near our treasure. How many of our hearts would be buried down here at the, near the mall or on the 14th hole over here at the golf course or somewhere else? 
I can tell you where David Livingston's heart is buried. It's buried under a big old tree in Africa. The Living Bible says, don't store up treasures here on earth where they rode away and can be stolen. Store them in heaven, for they will never lose their value, and they will be safe from thieves. If your prophets are in heaven, your heart will be there too. Some people say, Pastor Jack, I just don't really have a missions I mean, I appreciate that your church is about missions and stuff, but, you know, I just don't really have a missions heart. And my answer is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? And if you're okay with that, let's go eat. But if that bothers you a little bit, if you've read your Bible, if you've listened to the, read the words of Jesus, and you know that maybe that ain't right, then I can fix you. I can help you. I can help you. If you don't have a missions heart, I can help you. And this is why I, sometimes I'll say this when I get this dialogue. I can help you right now. I just say, pull out your checkbook. And let's write us a check. And let's make it a good one, a big one. And let's send it. Let's send it to Indonesia. Let's send it to Pakistan. Or let's send it somewhere in the world. Because here's what's going to happen. Jesus said this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, Pastor, what I love about the faith promise, because there's a lot of pastors that'll take some of the church's money and give it to missions. But when we do this, this is my money. You said this morning, yeah, tithe belongs to God, but that offering's mine. And when I give my money, and when my children give their money, and when my wife and I, when, when we give our money, something, Jesus said, your heart, your heart, where your treasure is, where your, your heart's going to be there. Your heart is going to be there. And if you don't have a heart for missions, today's the day. Because here's what happens. You fill this thing out and you make it substantial. Every time the nations or missions or something, right, you're going to rise because you've got investment there. It's like opening up the morning paper and seeing what Apple is selling for right now. Or what Exxon is. What's, what's the stock market? Because you've got stuff invested in that stock. Amen? Amen. John Wesley said it's just as wrong to store up treasure in heaven. The treasure on earth. He said it's just as wrong to store up treasure on earth as it is to do anything else Jesus told us not to do. Family, we're not going to be here long. Pastor mentioned about um, uh, Robert Moffat. I have an hourglass in my office. I've turned it over a thousand times. And every time I turn it over, I quote that quote from Robert Moffat. He said, you have all of eternity to celebrate your victories and you have one short hour to win them. I did the math a long time ago. The Bible says a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. I took a 12-hour working day, did the math, did the pro rate. Here's what I got. If a thousand years is like a day to the Lord, then a 70-year-old man gets 57 minutes. We're going to be here about an hour, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. And whatever it is that we're going to do that's going to last forever, come on, family, we best be getting on with it. Wayne Myers, that old missionary from Mexico City, stuck his finger in my face years ago, and he said, young man, you are accountable to God for the excess and the surplus that's in your life. I don't want to go to heaven leaving all my treasure here on the earth. Every possession we have is a trust. It's a trust. We're not owners. We're stewards. We're stewards, family. We came in with nothing. We go out with nothing. The last thing, I remember one year, we, we faith promised enough one year to pay off all of our debt. 
And I thought, Lord, all this money is going to missions. I said, we could pay off our building. We could pay off our land. We could pay it all off. Or we could plant 300 churches with that money that year. A lot of money came in that year. And I thought, oh, Lord, oh. And then I thought, what would happen if the Lord came back that year? And I caught up in the air, and I looked down, and I said, Lord, it's all going up in flames, but it's paid for. It's paid for. It's all going up. Or I could say, Lord, we planted those 300 churches this year, and that, that loan and that bank and all that mortgage is going up in smoke together. I think I'd... Come on. Jesus said in Luke twelve fifteen. And there's such a sweet spirit in this church, a sweet heart in this house. Jesus said, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. How many know there's all kinds of greed? He said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. He said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Fourthly, if I were the devil, I would make sure that the great commission became the great omission. Instead of go into all the world and preach the gospel. Instead of make disciples of all the nations, and I'm reading your banners here this morning, Pastor, and I'm seeing the heart of Jesus you know, articulated right here for all of our eyes to see, winning the lost and planting churches and making disciples and helping the poor. I'm looking at those banners right there. Oh, no, listen, listen. If I were the devil, instead of go into all the world and preach the gospel, instead of make disciples of all the nations, I would teach a much more popular doctrine. I would teach stay at home. And build facilities and teach yourselves over and over and over again to be his disciples. Oswald J. Smith said, why should anybody hear the gospel twice before everybody has heard the gospel once? I would deafen the ears of Christians to the sound of a ticking clock. I would make sure that Christians felt no sense of urgency for perishing people. If I were the devil, I would convince everyone that there's plenty of time, no risk, no hurry, chill out. What's the matter? Be a little slow down. Chill. Relax. Enjoy. Enjoy. Don't think that time is running out. Don't think that every man and every woman and every boy and every girl is just one heartbeat away from eternity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 29, the important thing to remember is that our remaining time, our remaining time, what are you going to do with your remaining? Our remaining time is very short, and so is our opportunities for doing the Lord's work. David said in Psalm 39, 4, Lord, help me to realize how brief my time on earth will be. Help me to know that I'm here but for a moment more. My life is no longer than my hand. My whole lifetime is but a moment to you, proud man, frail as breath, a shadow. All his busy rushing ends in nothing. He heaps up riches for someone else to spend. Time is so short. Eternity is so long. If I were the devil... I'd make sure that priorities were all messed up. I'd see to it that time was wasted, wasted, wasted until an entire generation died off. And then I'd build again with the next generation on the failure of the past. I'd fight to make lesser priorities more important than preaching the gospel to perishing people. It's easy. If I were the devil, this would be one of my easiest jobs, misguided priorities. You know, there's a story Then in 1996, at Super Bowl 30, in Tempe, Arizona, the Dallas Cowboys and the the, uh, uh, Steelers, and the Pittsburgh Steelers, they were playing in Super Bowl 30. And right there in the middle, I mean, there was was a seat on the 50-yard line. 
And a woman was sitting there, and the seat next to her was empty. It's a Super Bowl. It's the Cowboys. And so the guy sitting behind her, he just kept watching that seat, thinking somebody will be there, somebody will be there. Finally, after halftime, start the third quarter. And this fella leans over. He just can't believe it. I mean, we're talking about a golden ticket seat, empty. And he taps her on the shoulder, and he says, excuse me, ma'am, I know it's none of my business. He said, but why in the world is that seat sitting there empty? She said, oh, this seat belonged to my husband, and he passed away. Oh, he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to hear that, but I'm thinking maybe a, a nephew or a, or a son or somebody else would be sitting there. She said, beats me. They all insisted on going to his funeral. So if I was a devil, <clears throat> messing up people's priorities would be one of my easiest jobs. Fifthly, don't get mad at me. If I were the devil, I'd encourage Christians to pray for the harvest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because see, that way, they'll think they're doing their part in the Great Commission. You know, I, I would know. Here's what I would know if I were the devil. Praying for a harvest that is already ripe is much less effective than praying for the laborers to get out there and go and reap that harvest. You know, some years ago, Carol and I lived there in Yuma, Arizona. We lived right in the middle of 360 acres of cotton. Had this little farmhouse right in the middle, surrounded by 360 acres. I never saw those farmers stand up there When that cotton was ready, praying, oh, Father in heaven, make this cotton riper. No, baby, that cotton was ripe enough. As a matter of fact, it was so ripe that if we didn't get some cotton pickers, we were going to lose the harvest. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in John 4, 35, do you not say there's still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. Or as the Living Bible says, do you think the work of harvesting will not begin until summer ends four months from now? Look around you. Vast fields of human souls are ripening all around us and are ready for harvesting now. There's some Christians in their closet and they're hiding. Now I believe in prayer. I passionately believe in it and commit my life to it. But family, nobody's going to get saved through prayer. People get saved by the gospel. Now, I mean, we should get on our knees and pray. But then we need to get up off our knees and get on our feet. And we need to go give somebody the gospel. Because that's how people get saved. Well, brother, I'm praying for your salvation. Well, tell them about Jesus. How many understand what I'm trying to say this morning? How effective is it to pray for a harvest that is already so ripe we are losing it faster than we can harvest it? Jesus said in Luke 10, 2, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Here's how you pray. You don't pray for the harvest. You pray for the, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field. You'd pray that somebody's going to get up off their rusty dusty and go pick some cotton. The need is for workers. The need is for goers. The need is for resources. The need is for givers. The need of a ripe harvest is not to get riper. It's for people to go and give so that it can be harvested. And finally this morning, number six. If I had more time, I'd preach all 666, all 666 schemes that I have if I was the devil. But I only have time for six. Finally, 
If I were the devil, I would teach Christians that the power of the Holy Spirit has been sent to bless them. I would see to it that there's a bless me focus in the church. Oh, bless me, anoint me, appoint me, prosper me, help me, heal me, deal me, fill me, thrill me, teach me, reach me, enlighten me, build me, encourage me, inspire me, saturate me, satiate me, satisfy me, appease me, please me, give me, grant me, grace me, hallelujah for me. All right, that's enough of me talking about me. Why don't you talk about me? If I were the devil, I would teach that the Holy Spirit has been sent to bless me in my life, not help me reach the world with the gospel. And yet, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, witnesses, witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The power of the Holy Spirit is that we might be his witnesses. If you understand and can use a strong concordance or do any kind of exegesis at all, you will know that that word witness is the Greek word marthas. It's translated in other places, not witness, but martyrs. Martyrs. You shall receive power, power, power. The reason we have been given the Holy Spirit is so that we would have the power to lay our life down as we are delivering the message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And there are people out there today laying their lives down by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are people in here today laying their lives down by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why the Holy Spirit has been given. He's the power for me to not live a self-focused life unto me, a self-seeking life. It's the power to lay myself down for others, for the gospel. Well, it's what I would do if I were the devil. And the truth is, for the last 2,000 years, he's gotten away with so much of this marginalizing missions and distracting pastors and seducing Christians to live for the moments and to love material things. He's gotten away with it. But family, as I finish this morning, I have to tell you in the last several decades, he has seen something. He has seen something that he has never reckoned on. He has never counted on happening. A generation has risen up right now, right now. A generation has risen up that is embracing the last command of Jesus to make it the first priority of their life. This is the devil's worst nightmare. It's his absolute worst-case scenario because millions of Christians all over the world are no longer falling for his tricks. At best, he knows and he understands at the rate that the gospel is going forth right now that he has maybe a handful of years left. Already in the 20th century, 50% of the continent of Africa has converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every seven weeks in Latin America, another million people are born again. 40% of Chile, Costa Rica, and Bolivia are Bible-believing Christians. In Papua New Guinea and South Korea, 35% of those nations have confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Every day in China, 35,000 Chinese people are being born again. 65 years ago, there were 1 million Christians in China. 10 years ago, that number was 125 million. I tell you the God's truth. For every baby born in China right now, nine people are being born again. In 14 years, China will have over a, a, a quarter of a billion Christians. 
for the first time in the history of the world, the finish line is in sight. And the Lord is no longer waiting on us in the Western world to die to our materialism and our self-focus. He's going to do it with us or without us. Family, I'm not here with my hat in my hand saying, oh, the world, we need to, we, no, he's saving the world with us or without us, America. He's going to do it with our money or without our money. The third world right now is sending out missionaries five times faster than we are as we struggle and wake up and have our first world problems because our phone didn't charge through the night. Come on, family. I'm telling you right now, this gospel is being preached all over the world right now. The question is, will you and I be a part of it? Will you and I be a part of the greatest event in the history of the world? One last story. My nephew, police officer for many years in Arizona, head of the SWAT team. We were playing golf once up in Phoenix. And he said to me, Uncle, he said, you think the end of the world is near? He said, do you think the return of Christ is imminent? I was surprised he used those words because he wasn't churched. And I thought, now he's a police officer. And I need to give him not just some roll-off-the-tongue, pat, you know, Christian Pentecostal answer. I need to really look him in the eye and answer him with my heart. And so I said, man, that's quite a question. I said, you know, uh, let me just tell you, I know that I'm supposed to believe that. And I know I grew up, you know, as a Christian, knowing that I was supposed to believe that. Man, back in my day, before some of y'all were born, we were reading Hal Lindsey's book, The, The Late Great Planet Earth. We were watching that movie, A Thief in the Night. Scared the living daylights out of us, you know. We all felt that the Lord was, you know, was, was going to return and, and all of that. We thought Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. You know, those were the days. And, uh, and uh, I said, but you know, in all reality, I've never thought so. I said, because here's what Jesus said the end of the world is going to look like. A church is going to rise up. A church. A glorious, selfless, life-giving church who's going to embrace the last command of Jesus and make it her first priority. And I said, I never really saw that church. I said, until recently. And then I began to tell him some of these statistics that I was just sharing with you. There are nations in the world right now like Bhutan and and Nepal, where the gospel was hardly even there 10 years ago. Those nations are having more conversions than they're having births. And I began to share with him what's happening in the world. And now that the church is beginning to embrace, the church is dying to her selfishness. And she's becoming more Christ-like and more giving and more sacrificing. And she's asking, what can I give and what can I give up? And what can I believe God for? And she's no longer being seduced by these few moments of mortality. And I said, yes. I said, but if I told you what I really believed, it would shock you. And then I walked off. And he said, uncle, tell me. What do you really believe? And I said, Dan, not only do I believe the end of the world is near, but I believe I'm going to trigger the event. Come on, family. We're not to just look for this day. We are to hasten this day. Let's trigger the greatest event in the history of the world, the return of the Lord Jesus to this planet.